Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloomed, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. All right, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and with me is one of my favorite vocalists and people in the metal scene, Mr. Trevor from Black Dahlia Murder. Uh, in my opinion, he's one of the most versatile and recognizable singers to come along in extreme metal, I think, in like the past 15 years. He's one of the founding members, and you know him. If you've, if you've ever heard the band, you know exactly what he sounds like. Um, and one thing I think is really cool is that you are uh, a metal encyclopedia. Anytime I've talked to you about metal, you know more than just about anybody I've ever met. Like, you know everything. It's it's insane. And what I'm wondering is, like, is that is metal music one of the only things that you have an encyclopedic knowledge of? Or is that just how you are? You just collect information? It's it's really the only thing I've gone so gung-ho about, I think, in my life. And I have, like, the same level of excitement for it that I did as a kid. And then it really dawned when um, the internet kind of came into full swing, you know, and I could really dig around and, and uh, you know, absorb as much info as possible. But I, I definitely say all my eggs are in this one basket for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, seems like it's worked out well with this basket. I'd say, but I mean, when you say that you're as excited about it now as you were as a kid, um, it's like, so do you still spend the same amount of time looking things up um, and learning about it? Uh, yeah, man. You know, if not even more, I mean, now I do the uh, that column for Metal Injection, the Obituarist, where I uh, put bands out every month, you know, and it's all stuff that I handpick. So, um, yeah, man, I'm digging even harder for that, you know, and uh, but I mean, it was something I was doing anyway, just for fun. And I kind of felt like, wow, there's so many great bands that I just don't see in metals press that I'd love to see, you know, and uh, Brutal Death Metal in particular is in such an upswing right now. It's the biggest it's ever been, but you, you know, never see it anywhere in any any magazines or uh, on your uh your average uh, metal sites and stuff. So I just felt like this kind of responsibility to kind of give a voice to these bands that I really like and feel like are flying under the radar so hard, you know? Get, name me a few, please. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm in a, I, I'm in need of some, some new stuff. Uh, well, there's one of my favorites of the year is this band Venom. It's V E N E N U M. 
They're from Germany. And it's like a black death, kind of like a necrophobic, but it has like a lot of drama to it. It's like, like tribulation. So there's like a, like a soundtracky kind of aspect to it, you know, like really long songs, like real narrative songwriting that makes you feel like you're on this big quest or something. And the album is called trance of death. And it's one of the most original things I've heard in a long time. It's so, it's so powerfully good. It's so good. Um, Another one I've been to lately is this uh, it's a local band here from Detroit called Temple of Void. Uh, they have a new album called Lords of Death. Yeah, that's two of death records in a row I'm telling you about. <laughs> but uh, they're uh, like old school death metal, but slow, like doom death. It's got a crawling kind of pace. It's super, super heavy, uh, kind of like a hooded menace or something like that. Uh, it's very like Finnish and Swedish at its core, I want to say. And... Um, yeah, it's making some waves. It's on um, Shadow Kingdom Records. I see a lot of positive reviews for those guys, so I'm, I'm getting pretty stoked for them. They're relatively small, so. And do you find that uh, you said that there's like a resurgence, I guess, of in the music? Do you find that there's a resurgence in the audience as well? I think so. You know, I think it's it's coming into popularity in a way that uh, that it hasn't been in a while. Death metal in particular. Well, metal overall, I think. I think that. Um, on a high school level, you're going to find a lot more black T-shirts than when I was in high school. You know, like I, I seriously was the only death metal kid that I knew, and I felt like such an alien. Same here. <laughs> you know, so to, yep. to jump headlong into this world of music and like I, I don't come up. You know, like I seriously just tunnel vision on the band and the underground, and I, I hate politics. I hate the state of the world. I hate real life. I, I just. I'm a super like I don't know I'm a I'm a big kid, uh, to the point that it's probably sad, and uh, <laughs> I just I tunnel vision on this thing. It's it's what makes me happy, man. Uh, new sounds, new music, championing the underground, death metal T-shirts. I, my whole closet is full of death metal shirts. That's all I fucking have. It's pathetic. It's like I'm I'm like Rain Man for this shit. Well, I mean, but you know what? It really comes across also in your own music, like how. I don't know how versed you are in it, Brian, as well. Like, uh, it's funny because I remember when you guys came out, people thought you, like, they called you guys like a metalcore band. I was like, no, 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 no. No, this band, this band is like legit. Like, listen to them. And I, I, I feel like you guys are. I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of cool bands over the... So I don't want to, like, say the wrong thing. There's been a lot of cool bands over the past 15 years. But you guys have always stuck out to me because it's just, like, how authentic... Uh, authentic and catchy it is. And oh, just, thanks, like, man. The, the best way. You're making me blush over yeah. here. I'm trying not to uh, interrupt you when you <laughs> yeah. say all this complimentary shit the whole time. So yeah, I'm just, well, know, I'm trying not just to. know that I'm blushing, but... You know, I <laughs> I always thought that way too. You know, I, I thought people would see what we were all about right away, but I think that just the, our appearance, you know, kind of uh, skewed people's perception. And I think that that we uh, took on this sudden popularity in the wake of like us being on Ozfest with the second album. That was a huge jump into like more 
of a limelight with press and stuff. So all of a sudden, there's all these pictures of us out there in the magazines next to Killswitch Engage and As I Lay Dying and Unearth, you know, like all the big metalcore dudes at the time. And that was the mm-hmm. that was the huge thing, you know. And then, uh, you know, trends come and go. And now, you know, then we're a deathcore band for the next five years, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you don't sound anything like those bands. But, Never really have. But honestly, I don't get bent about it anymore. I think if anything, like the genre fight that always follows us has led all kinds of people from the underground into the band. You know what I mean? I see all walks in the crowd and, you know, I think it takes, it takes more than one kind of fan to fill up a a room. You know what I mean? Uh, And we've just been really weirdly lucky to kind of transcend this glass ceiling of death metal. And you know what I mean? We've taken it, I don't know. We, we try to take it down different avenues. You know what I mean? That I guess aren't typical, but I don't think that we have a typical position in the universe. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that, uh, like doing warp tour, for example, you know what I mean? There's, I mean, there's tons of people that would cry sell out. There's tons of people that did, you know, but to me, we went as ourselves. We went, we played our music. We didn't compromise anything we did to be there. You know, all we were trying to do is get in front of some new, new faces, you know? And, uh, you know, we've always been trying to think about, appealing to all different kinds of fans that like us you know what i mean so we've toured with all kinds of bands man you know we've toured with death corax we've toured with terror we've toured with you know tons of different shit man and just kind of realizing the versatility of this weird situation i think is a big reason why we're here at all and around still you know well i think that one of the things that draws people to you guys but also might have been part of what it caused the genre wars that you guys don't hide that you enjoy doing this. Whereas I think a lot of, a lot of extreme bands pretend, you know, you, you hang out with them on the bus and they're like the funniest motherfuckers ever. But like you see them in photos and you know, they're, they're putting on this image of uh, being really, really dark and evil people. And you guys have always just been like, yeah, we party. Um, and I th- I've always thought that that's awesome. Yeah, that was just kind of just out of necessity, you know, like uh, we just didn't look right for the job, you know, first of all. And initially we were like, all right, let's not put photos of ourselves anywhere. There's no photos on Unhallowed. There's no photos in any of the records, but it started with Unhallowed for that reason. And we're like, well, we just want to trick everyone first. We don't want them to know that, you know, we got short <laughs> hair and we're coming out of the hardcore scene in Michigan, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh but then, you know, Metal Blade was like, yeah, you know, this is a necessary evil. You got to do photos. You got to do videos. You know, so we started taking photos and there we are punching each other in the face, you know. And at the time, it, it that was so atypical. You know, now I see, so, you know, that that's like become such a popular thing to kind of reveal your comedic personality. You know what I mean? But at the time, it was so, I think, so starkly different from what everyone was seeing. And I think it just said to anyone like, well, me in particular being this bespectacled kind of misfit just said, anybody can do this. You know what I mean? Like get off your ass and get in this shit. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I think also we just came as fans. All I ever said was I'm a fan and I feel lucky to be here and be a part of this and seeing music and playing music and, and, uh, you know, that I, I can't not smile up there. And like I, I love bands that are hard. I love bands that are scary. Bands scare the shit out of me when they do it right. I love that. I love there's yeah, of course. there's room for all kinds, man. You know, but for us, you know, it was just kind of like being ourselves, I guess, and slowly revealing who that was. And somehow 
I don't know, somehow it worked. You know what I mean? I think they just saw that we were real, you know, uh, and uh, so. Well, yeah, I don't think that if Behemoth suddenly put on a party image that that would work either, you know, like they, they, their image fits their personality musically perfectly right but then but then you have you know nurgle selling you coffee and stuff now so it's it's somewhat (laughs) it's somewhat changing for them but i mean they're obviously doing it right i mean they've ascended to the top of the heap here in the states you know what i mean absolutely so you know you said something interesting before which is that uh anyone can do it just get your ass in it and get to work basically but you know i've worked on a few of your records and I know I know that you guys aren't just you guys don't just do it man you guys have an insanely uh, top level work ethic and your the standards that you guys have for yourselves musically are you know are are just uh, brutal in the best possible way so I I mean, I, I feel like you're not giving yourself enough credit, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about that because like bands don't just don't get as tight as you guys are, and or for instance, uh, when you you replace some members, but you always replace them with like people that are incredible, um, it, like you keep on raising the bar, and I know that that's. I know that that's like an integral part of how you guys work because I've seen it from the inside. Can, have you guys always been that way? Uh, yeah, you know, it's just there is a lot of comedy, but that's kind of like what comes after the success. You know what I mean? That's us celebrating that we worked hard and we played a good show, you know, hopefully. Like that's the ultimate goal is to be a tight band, to be um, – a, you know, to be a good band, to make good records that resonate, you know, to make songs that are dynamic, to make songs that can that can emote in spite of being a fast band, you know, and being a death metal band. But it's always something we've taken so seriously. But now we have a lot more tools, you know, we're a lot more wise, a lot more educated. I mean, I'm not educated musically at all, but it's it's definitely, you know, much more prevalent in the band now and with the players we have. And uh you know, I mean, obviously you want to uh, to upgrade when you're looking for a new guy. You know what I mean? If you can. But you definitely have to keep with the standard. You know what I mean? We, we, uh, and the other thing, it's like, uh, it's, no one has been just a hired gun. You know, there's, 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 there's rigorous testing to see what you're like. And, you know, we try to have someone that, that embodies what we feel is this group personality of the band and that will accentuate that. And we'll, you know, we'll be good to the fans, we'll be grounded, we'll be respectful, you know, like it's, there's so many factors, you know, it's, it's more than just playing, but you have to live with these people and you have, they have to, you know, respect this brand that we've been able to bring to life, you know what I mean? And, and, and honor the legacy. And so it's, you know, it's really important on that personal level too. So, and, you know, I see bands that are hired guns. I see bands that don't trust each other. I see bands that, that don't, you know, pay each other equally where there's, you know, all kinds of different, you know, uh, jealousies Mm -hmm. and unrest. And, you know, we, we've always split everything five ways, you know, no matter how long you've been in the band, you know, um, it's, you know, it's, you're here 
shared blood and sweat with us, man. You're going through all the shitty motions that are being in a band, you know, all the downtime in the van, all the uh, being filthy, all the waking up, you know, after two hours of sleep, you know, and having to go back and do it again and all the shit that sucks, you know, and you have to have so many people that are positive forces, man, because we've had negative guys in the band and all they do is bring you down, man. And you already know touring sucks. You're taking a lot. You're taking a lot in stride when you go to her and you do it positively. So you don't need somebody pointing out every little flaw, you know, like we, you know, some people that were in the band, you'd hand them a sandwich, you know, so we'd be at somebody's house. This is way back in the day when we used to stay at people's houses, they'd hand him a sandwich and he'd be like, he'd eat some of it and they'd be like, you know, it'd be really sick if this had lettuce on it. You know what I mean? It's just like, (laughs) and just living with that, living with that person constantly that just has that attitude it's such a drain on your soul, man. And, you know, it's like a drain on the whole thing and on everybody. And we keep the band in such a, we run such a tight ship that, you know, everybody airs their grievances out, you know, like as soon as they hit, you know, like that's the best way, you know, nobody's internalizing shit. You know, we, we try to, it's like the force. You can tell when something is wrong in this band, you know what I mean? There it's, it's easy to see when it's like this because we have such a, a unified thing, you know, even through all the members, you know, uh, it seems like it's been such a rapid change of members, but when you're here living through all these shows and all these experiences and tours and, and albums, it's, it seems like a long, just an evolution, you know? Well, yeah. And relationships run their course. So, um, it just, you know, the, like, I know you guys are still cool with Ryan, for instance. Right, you know, um, um, most of the members in the last while we're all cool with, and that's just kind of come with maturity, I think, whereas, you know, Brian and I were very, very bitter when the initial member changes happened. And, you know, we got screwed on some occasions, yes, and, you know, there was definitely warranted anger, you know, but now even all these years later, you know, I, st- I just want to, be cool with everybody that's been through this thing. You know what I mean? I have respect for them. I love them for what they did for us. They made a lot of sacrifices, you know, like what they did. It's not for nothing. You know what I mean? And, uh, us, I've been able to, to mend some, some bridges, you know, uh, and that's felt really good. You know, I still have like, um, some kind of deep seated guilt in, in some regards with some of these, some of these people, because, you know, it, there was, it, it, it was, it was ugly, man. There was times when, when things were pretty ugly, you know, and well, things get nasty, man. They, uh, they do. And, you know, like it's such an emotional thing. And, and when it was, the dream was so new and, you know, the, it first felt like it was under threat. It was just such an emotional thing. I couldn't like fight it back. You know what I mean? And now, you know, I've just grown and I realized that that people's dreams are different, you know, and uh, it would I'd be asking a lot for someone to come in the band and want it as bad as as Brian and I have all this time. I think, you know what I mean? We, we, we hope for that, you know, but I always think that, you know, there's a chance that people are going to change their minds or, or grow out of it or or do something else. You know, life is a life is a mysterious and, and uh, you know weird thing and there's all kinds of factors that can that can make it make it difficult you know and touring is it's not easy you know right out of the gate man like you said it's terrible i mean well it's terrible for for relationships at home yes doing it at the rate that we're doing it it's um you know it's it's hard to i don't know it's hard to even have the energy that you're supposed to give a relationship sometimes just out being on the road, you know, like you get defeated, you get deflated, you get, um, 
misanthropic even sometimes. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot of uh, pressure to, to have that duality in your life. And when you feel like you're constantly losing because we're gone more than we're here, you know what I mean? How much are you gone? Uh, not as much as we used to be. We used to, I mean, the longest we ever went was 10 weeks straight with, and that was like a bunch of tours butted up against each other, just nonstop, you know, but I want to say, I want to say it's about 200 shows a year, you know, now. Man, that's a, that's a good amount. But it used to be more and, you know, we had, a, we were, we had a lot more to fight. I'm not saying we don't have anything to fight for, but, but now we have time to back off a little bit and create some kind of anticipation. Whereas before it was just like, we were knocking on the doors, you know what I mean? When we started. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, there's this quote that, uh, I kind of agree with, um, it's just one of these cliche self-help quotes, but, uh, but I actually do think that it holds some water, which is that you are kind of the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So choose them wisely. Um, and I think it's none more true than when you're stuck in a van Dude, with people. I've, I've never heard that before. And that is so absolutely goddamn true. And, you know, when and going back to those same negative people that I was speaking of, it, it was true. They they brought down the hole. You had you had to defend your honor. You know what I mean? Sometimes you had to apologize for them sometimes. Just, you know, it's it, it's true. It was absolutely true. So this uh, vetting process that you guys have now, um, like I, I remember that I kind of met you guys around. Well, no. When I came to Detroit, that was when Alan was first kind of joining the band. He wasn't quite in yet, and uh, he was recording the drums. And I remember that you guys tested him for quite a long time. Um, and I imagine that you guys didn't have the, I guess, you guys weren't in the position probably, to correct me if I'm wrong, to put your initial members through that sort of vetting process. Now you're in a situation where you can take the time to see if people are as committed as you are. Yeah, that's that's very true. You know, we, we you thought you knew what you were getting into because they were your friends and you had a lot of fun, you know? But when it came down to living together constantly and being enduring a lot of hardships, you know, it, it just, it can separate you, you know? And um, yeah, definitely we have a lot more scrutiny bringing people into the band. Also, you know, searching... Um, nationally and even globally at times opened up a lot of doors because we were just mining a very, you know, underdog kind of underground scene here for people. And, uh, you know, there's, there can be a glass ceiling on that kind of talent. You know what I mean? So, you know, Ryan was the first person we reached out to that was like from out of town. And I remember thinking like, how do these bands have members all over the place? You know, how does this even work? You know? And, um, you know, oh, as opposed to all living in the right, same town and practicing regularly, yeah. you know, and like, and now that element has just been completely gone from BDM for so long because we have people all over the place, you know, so we have people kind of doing their own upkeep at home on their chops before tours. Then we show up, we get together in Michigan at our practice space, which I'm, there, I'm at so rarely, like, I don't remember the code to punch in to get in, <laughs> you know, and like Alan's there all the time because he's the drummer and he's dedicated as hell. I mean, he's been like a blessing, man. He's been the most dedicated drummer we've ever had. He warms up incessantly. He cares about it. You know, like he's constantly working on it. No kind of ego has come to him that's like, 
you heard any of that, you know, it's like he he's really grounded and he doesn't seem like a death metal drummer. And I mean that in the best way possible, because some of them are such fucking freaks, man. You know, you know, and you would have known by now if the ego thing was going to happen for sure. You know, I mean, he's he's gotten yeah. praise. I don't think nearly as much as he deserves. Honestly, I completely agree. I feel like he's still somewhat in this weird shadow of Shannon. I, I think maybe because of the success of the first DVD, you know, that was escape escaping the uh, the shadow of that lineup in particular has taken a long time. I think for that reason, people like saw us as a TV show as well, or, you know, some kind of comedy troupe or something, you know what I mean? So like it was, I don't know. It's just, it became a, a catch 22 to have that DVD. It, it introduced everyone to us, got them attached to us. And then when the lineup got shaken up, it was really detrimental and, you know, and it divided people, you know, and I think it, it, um, I don't know. It was it was just a weird thing to to combat. You know what I mean? And I feel like Alan, um, you know, he just he doesn't get the dues that that, uh, that Shannon does. I'm not I'm not quite sure what that is. Well, he had a lot. That's a lot to live up to. But I mean, he's not just is he awesome, but he's really stepped it up. Like from when he was first joining the band till like now. I've watched recent live videos of him, and man, he's like he's. He was already really, really good when I recorded him, but he's way better now. Oh, I agree. I agree, man. I feel like I've seen a lot of growth on his part, and I feel like I see growth on everyone's part. Not myself. I'm very deprecating, but but I do definitely on the in the uh, other you guys. You sound great. <laughs> the other guys constantly, you know, especially when it comes time to record, and you know, we see where everybody's head is at two years later. You know, because people say, "Oh, you make records so fast," but. We live fast, man. You know how many freaking shows we play? You know how many nights we're together? You know how many different bands we see in our travels and how many records we listen to and how much info gets absorbed and how many ideas are exchanged, you know, between us? It's it's par for the course at, at, at how fast, you know, this whole thing has been moving, you know, like so it doesn't seem like suicide to us to to have to write a record in a few months and get it done. You know what I mean? Like, it's just what we do. It's been what we've always known. So now it's like a total scheduled thing for us. You know, it's just feels, feels like it always does, you know? Well, that's the work ethic thing that, uh, I was talking about earlier when, uh, that one of the things that I was impressed by with you guys was just how business-like everything was run, but not to the point of stripping the fun away from it, just to the point of keeping the standards super high, getting the work done and not fucking around. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty I, much it, it man. That's the credo, you know, and that's been it. We just, we realized the opportunity right from the second, the first second. And Brian and I, you know, have always been the kind of two headed thing of this band. And, um, we had made a pact, you know, dude, we got on metal blade records. Let's do it. Let's tour. Let's get a van. Let's hit the pavement. Let's go out and do as much damage as we can and not stop until the last drop, you know, and it's gone so far beyond making one record, which was my initial dream. All I wanted to do was have one <laughs> final product in my hand to be like, look, guys, you know, look, mom, I did it. You know, all that time I spend in my room staring at these death metal records and look, look what I did. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I mean, it's obviously gone so far beyond that. But so I feel like my dream is, in a way, it's just never slowed. It's never stopped. It's been like this 
this snowball just gradually growing and growing. And so, I mean, my body's gotten old, you know, and, and, uh, I remember we, we, we used to be, you know, sold as this super young band, like, wow, they're so fast and they're so young. Look how cute they are, you know? And, and, <laughs> and now, you know, we've, we've survived through a couple different trends and a couple generations. It kind of feels like, and, you know, we're the old men and, you know, people in the crowd are 15 and looking at me like I'm some old wizard, you know? And, um, how does that feel? It's weird. It's weird, but it's cool. You know, sometimes it's insulting. Sometimes they think you're way older than you are. And you're like, ah, I'm riding the alcohol too hard or, or, you know, <laughs> I mean, or, or whatever. But, but for the most part, it's cool. They, uh, they really res- seem to respect me, you know, and, and, um, I, uh, you know, I try to be really good to the fans. I, you know, I see myself in the crowd every day as a, a young kid, as an introverted 15 year old, you know, with a bowl cut, wire glasses, just, you know, the kid that slips through the cracks at school, you know, and um, I, I, I pay extra special attention to that kid because that's me. You know, I I didn't come into this bloom or whatever you want to call it until this whole thing and being out on tour and just jumping headlong into this this metal world, you know, and like surrounding myself with it and just kind of putting my blinders onto everything else. You know, it's been like the most rewarding thing for me. And I've I found my footing, you know. So did, was there ever anything else that spoke to you, I guess, kind of like this? Or was is it just like you found this and you knew it was you knew it was your calling and that's I mean, it? It's, no, I, I, no looking back. I guess just music as a whole, you know, it's not just metal. You know, I, I love punk. I love hardcore. I love all different kinds of stuff. You know, I, I, I really, as I get older, I like even more different, you know, I open my, myself up even more and, uh, but yeah, it's always been music, you know, and, but I, you know, really coming into metal and just kind of like realizing, um, I don't know, you know, like it, it took me from not having a, a place and not having any friends to finding like-minded individuals to realizing that religion was a fraud and I didn't have to feel this guilt about myself, you know, about touching my own dick at 13 years old or whatever the fuck, you know, and just all, everything that like that defined who I still am just just came with it, you know, and it's I don't know. It's like my still going strong. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I guess if you when you look at that kid in the crowd um, that you relate to, and you're like, "That's me," say that that kid's like, "Man, I want to do what you do." What would you What would you tell him to do? What would you What would be the first piece of advice? Would be just dedicate your life to it. I tell him to eat four. Jump in. I tell him to eat four hot pockets right in a row. And just <laughs> f- fucking do it. Just tell him, like, I don't know, man. Just tell him the uh, the basics of how we got signed. You know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't fucking rocket science. You know what I mean? It's It was reaching out to a ton of labels. It was making bios for ourselves where we jacked ourselves off in the third person about what <laughs> little pathetic achievements we had achieved at the time. You know? Like, for us, it was like being uh, number one in death metal on uh, mp3.com for a while, which was a big thing. Oh, I remember mp3.com. Yeah, before before MySpace, before, like, that whole thing, you know. And um, Did you guys ever used to get – were you guys on it back when they used to pay you? Nah. Dude, so, like, in 99 or 2000, they would pay you. They paid out, like, something like 100 grand a month to independent artists – 
Can you believe that shit? Like, and then they called it payback for playback. And so you had all these, like, bedroom artists, back when, like, bedroom artists were first a thing, you know, uh-huh. um, around the turn turn of the century, who were making, like, 20 grand a month off of mp3.com and stuff. Usually electronic artists, but I did right. discover yeah, some metal sure. artists as well. Uh, I remember um, using it as the ultimate tool to hunt at the time. I remember hearing uh, Decrepit Birth on there for the first time and, you know, just so many bands that are like a staple in my life. I found Origin. Yeah, yeah. Spawn of Possession. Um, um, I remember when we heard uh, Dragon Force and they were called Dragon Heart back in the day, you know, they were like killing it on mp3.com. And, uh, you know, I think um, us being a bunch of nerds that were semi-computer savvy helped right out of the gate because we knew how to kind of reverse engineer like the way we found bands and and the way we found um blogs and different outlets online we got in contact with with all of them you know what i mean when we were trying at this like demo level and um you know we were trying to spread ourselves around man and um we kind of like fought our way onto this hellfest lineup you know, uh, we were like bombing these message boards and some some band had dropped off and we ended up squeaking our way on there. You know, just we were trying to get as many little achievements under our belt as we could at the time just so we could put them in that rap sheet so we could convince some label to like to bite, you know, and mm-hmm. um, it we got um, 28 rejection letters first and uh, out of 30. And, uh, you know, we did every label you've ever heard of, all the, all the big ones, you know, Nuclear Blast, Century, Metal Blade on down. Um, you know, your, uh, your uh, Willow Tips, they were the, uh, the first one to bite, actually, and we were very excited about that. And, you know, to me, that's still an honor. And now Willow Tip is, is thrice the awesome label that it was then, you know. And, um, yeah, Jason, the guy that ran it, I think he was in. I was about to ask you if he's still running He it. was um, embittered for quite a while I believe because you know we had the contract in our hands and then Metal Blade rang and obviously you know you know what we had to do and so so did he yeah. you know but now you know um, I, I you know through my uh, my uh, championing of, of metal and you know stuff that's on his label and stuff we've become friends and we talk a lot and um, and that's really cool to me I really like that but um, uh, you know when Metal Blade called they called so much later then all these snail mail rejection letters came back that we thought it was a joke at first. And we didn't know who Faley was. You know, you, we, you only saw Slagle's face. Slagle was the only, the only identity that I had attached to the label, you know, that I'd known. You know, you know who Slagle was since you were, you were 14 or something, you know, getting into Metal Blade mm-hmm. and picking up Slay, uh, Slayer records and, and seeing Metal Blade ads with scantily clad chicks in hockey jerseys, you know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. and um, you know, for me, it was all about Cannibal Corpse and Broken Hope. And um, the real gore-driven death metal was my first really, like, big boner for death metal you know like i wanted the most torn off heads the most zombies the most you know macabre ever you know and that's really still what i strive to do in my own way with with what we do you know thematically and lyrically and you know i (coughs) so metal blade i I equate with the beginning of what is, you know, known as guttural death metal. What, you know, like what has, mm-hmm. you know, led to 
led to brutal death metal. You could, you could argue that suffocation, I mean, musically, is probably the biggest impetus behind it. But you look at, you know, Chris Barnes he was, and, and, and Joe from Broken Hope, they were so guttural at the time. So, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, there were other guys in other corners of the world that were doing it, but they weren't in the limelight like that. They weren't on Metal Blade. They weren't. So to me, Metal Blade, you know, it came into my life as this death metal label. You know what I mean? And um, I still view it that way. You know, it's such a versatile thing. They've done so much. And there's so much classic records, you know, that I've learned about now you know, from their past that I didn't know as a kid when I was just kind of like, I used to have my nose up to anything with clean singing. You know what I mean? It used to just be like, it had to be so extreme. I remember those days. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I like, I, it was so one dimensional, the, my thought and, um, it got boring so fast eventually when I tunnel visioned on it so hard, you know, but I remember, you know, being too cool for anything I had liked previously, you know, I it's too cool for Pantera all of a sudden, you know, just like whatever. It's not heavy enough, you know, and just like um, being really lame about it. And, you know, and now I see that kid, too. You know, there's so much elitism on all different <laughs> kinds of levels that it's just ridiculous out there. You know what I mean? And, and I thought coming into metal that we wouldn't be judged harshly because um, I thought of it as the most accepting thing you could be a part of. And then <laughs> not you quite. get in it <laughs> yeah, and you get in it and you see like this scene is like, it's just like high school. You know what I mean? Like in every, in every facet, you know, they want you to be in a certain uniform, you know, whether it's leather and chains or, you know what I mean? Who knows? You know, each, each, each kind of corner of the scene has its own look and, and kind of trademarks, you know? And, um, so it was really, I don't know. It was kind of disheartening for a while at first, but like I said, you know, instead of just being butthurt that we weren't called death metal, we just marched on, and uh, eventually that kind of became its own positive, you know, like uh, a, allowing us to just reach down so many avenues and appeal to so many people on this really broad spectrum, you know, that was just totally unexpected. We could not have foreseen it, you know. So, I mean, like, so basically it sounds like to me, like, so you got 28 rejection letters. Um, you were initially rejected by the metal audience. Uh, you guys just had the confidence, obviously, to just in, in what you were doing to where even if you're getting this uncomfortable feedback or whatever that just fuck you, we're going to do our thing. Um, what? Where does that come from? Like, we're like, because a lot of people will just crumble under that. Like, I know that like, okay, so a lot of people experience the rejection thing. And then eventually get signed, right? So that's a common story is that lots of people who get signed went through rejections. But then I know then there's the next level where you're baby band and you're dealing with press for the first time and you're dealing with being an opener and having people stare at you and they don't want to watch you. And, you know, you're getting hate on a whole new level that you've never experienced. And then that's kind of like threshold number two that makes bands crumble. And I know that you guys got it pretty hard. Like, where does... Where did that confidence come from? And I'm asking this also because uh, for our audience, because we've got a lot of people who either want to pursue music or they want to quit their day job and pursue a recording career or are trying to just find the confidence to make, you know, make it happen. Um, and you do have to go through a lot of shit to make it happen in, in a creative field, I think. And 
So I'm just wondering, like, where did you guys find that confidence? Um, I think it was it was kind of being underdogs in our own scene. Even uh, we got no respect here. You know, we weren't cool kids in the hardcore scene. Um, we were always kind of on the outside, the outliers. You know, and um, mm-hmm. there was really no. There might have been death metal shows going on, but I I, I didn't know where. You know, and uh, Detroit just was not on the map at the time for that. You know, and uh, and so and there was you know hardcore was being seriously metalized at the time. You know that you had your um, your prayer for cleansings. You know the pre uh, BT band band and your um, undyings and you know there was a lot of Swedish riffage kind of creeping in. And uh, that's where we started. You know, we had breakdowns and everything on the first demo, and uh, we were like an exact pl- prayer for cleansing clone. And um, uh, you know, but the I think if anything, we just we found it in each other, man. We just we we laughed so hard, and we were such great friends, and we fucking hated everyone. We made fun of everyone to no end. You know, behind our own closed doors, of course. You know, we were nerds. We weren't going to get our asses kicked. But, <laughs> you know, we were total dicks, total piss ants. We made fun of everything. We took the piss out of everyone. If someone didn't like our shit, it was fuck them. You know, if anything, we had more of an attitude then, you know what I mean, than we do now. <laughs> and uh, it was just youth, man. It was just being rebellious. You know, it was like a bunch of cats in a bag that just – Wanted so bad to fucking do this thing and get some respect and and leave town. All we wanted to do was go somewhere where someone would show up, they've had heard the stuff, and receive it. You know what I mean? That was the goal. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, coming into the band, I tried out a few different times. And uh, initially, I came down because... Well, I didn't even have like a voice yet for it. I had sang in like punk bands and hardcore bands and, you know, I've screamed and stuff, but it was a different kind of thing altogether. And um, uh, it took me a few tries. Like I didn't really sound like what I was going for until like the third tryout. And um, the first time I went out, they had this really shoddy drummer. And, um, you know, I mean, I was a really late bloomer, man, like just in all regards. So for me to like leave my town, drive 45 minutes to somewhere else where I didn't know where the hell I was, you know, uh, closer to the Detroit. And um, it just was not part of my world. You know what I mean? It, uh, it was so strange and it felt like such a big deal. And like I was so far from and so out of my element that, you know, and, um, you know, the drummer, like they weren't. So they, what? 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 What made you do that, man? I'm just. Uh, it just fascinates me because I know. So like we talk to thousands of kids, man. We've got so many subscribers, and we're we always talk to them. And there's there's like certain kids who will who want it, but they just won't take that step. They won't go past their comfort zone and like go to the town 45 minutes over for the opportunity. Like, well, you and, know. Um, that was the uh, the thing. Like I, I did that much. I went there, you know, because I'd met Brian at some parties. Um, you know, I met him at hardcore shows, and I knew he was a geek. You know, he didn't belong. He was on the outskirts. <laughs> he was like one of the few guys left standing there that wasn't involved. So we were last pick. You know what I mean? And we became friends. And um, I remember I used to play guitar in this really shitty metalcore band. It was like. Um, I don't know. We wanted to be like disembodied, but we just could not play period. And, you know, we, we had everything else right, you know, but that, <laughs> but anyway, I used to um, pattern the vocals for the singer 
And I got my first, you know, taste of writing evil metal lyrics there, you know. And uh, before that, like I said, I was singing in different bands. And um, at one show, Brian Mosh to our band. And I was like, okay, by default, I like this kid, you know. <laughs> so so we started talking online kind of through this like little Michigan message board thing. And um, I remember he got like dissed by some chick and I remember him talking to him about that. And that was like one of the first things we ever talked about. And uh, eventually, you know, the band broke up or whatever. And um, he got a hold of me online and was like, hey, man, um, I'm looking for a singer for this like you know, this metal thing, you know, we called it metalcore, but, you know, but metalcore is like such an umbrella term, you know, but, but, but then it was, like I said, this, like this Swedish death metal, you know, with, with a few hardcore breakdowns thrown in, you know, you're yeah. on earth thing or whatever. And, um, I was like, uh, I'll do it. I'll try it. You know, I know I can write it, you know, I know I can pattern it. So I know I came down, I hadn't heard any material yet cause they hadn't recorded anything. And I, you know, I brought some of my writing. I tried to sing along with it or kind of reappropriate it to whatever the song was. And they recorded me in a four track and they were seeing all these other people. But, you know, and I wasn't good yet. You know, I, if anything, I showed a lot of enthusiasm. I, I jumped off the bass drum, you know, like I, I didn't just stand there, you know, but like just got into it. And, uh, and I also came with this attitude, like I had toured before, but it was on a super DIY level, you know, a laughable level, honestly. But at least I left town and it like put that spark in my, in my fucking heart. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. uh, somehow when I was a kid, uh, reading Get in the Van by Henry Rollins about how his time in Black Flag was so miserable, something about that just made me say, holy shit. I have to do this. I have to take control of my life by my own hands on this very ground basic level and do all the work that needs to be done to make this happen. All the bios, you know, all the, um, everything, you know, like don't fucking sit there and be, um, complacent, you know, like there's always something to be done. There always was, you know, it was, it was crazy. There you know? still is, I'm sure. It, it, for sure. It never stops, you know? And, and if you stop, it's like, what the fuck, man? We can't. We've This thing is still going. It's still getting bigger. I have to honor this opportunity. It's a one in a quadrillion, you know what I mean? It would be such a disrespect to myself, to the label, to anyone, you know? It, it really is a uh, a unique thing to be in that in that opportunity, but at the same time, it doesn't doesn't just happen it uh no no for sure yeah like like you're saying like you did decide to do all the work that went into it and you haven't let up you guys have not stepped off the gas in what 15 years or something yeah it's it's so many now that i can't remember so 15 or 16 something like that something like that but you know um what i did that was important the most important that day was plant this seed of you know, I don't want to just fucking play around locally. You know what I mean? I want to leave this town at some level. You know what I mean? And uh, find where they want to hear this shit. You know what I mean? Because if they don't know who we are, we can fool them. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> and if they don't know who we are, we can fool them because everybody just fucking writes us off. So, and, and I, I think that was the most important thing I said that day, you know, and the most important idea that I put in there and why they had me back, you know, was my general enthusiasm and my that I had this vision already that I, I, I had some semblance of what to do to make it happen. You know what I mean? And um, 
it wasn't like a whole lot of, you know, knowledge or anything. It's, it was just, you have to just do it. You have to get this thing into the people's hands. You got to send it to them. You got to, you got to make noise on every um, avenue you can, you know, mp3.com and whatever else is out there at the time. Um, make as many waves as you can on all these different levels and, and try to document it in this bio that was going to be like the ultimate culmination where we talked about ourselves in third person about <laughs> how awesome we were and how we're going to take over the world whether you helped <laughs> us out or fucking not it worked so you know and i get i guess so you know and then i came back a second time and it went a little bit better and then they got this kid the drummer who who was cory who was on the first record and all of a sudden they had real blast beats you know, real traditionals. Um, it wasn't like the metalcore blast where, you know, you're like cheating on the hi-hat. It was like, <laughs> it was the real deal. Was the wussy, the wussy blast. Right. It wasn't the wussy blast. It was the real deal. And it was at that point when I was like, oh, I'm driving 45 minutes to come out to this thing. And they sent me the song and I thought, wow. I was like, this is that fucked up song they were playing with that shitty drummer. You know, like I was like, this is so good. And I told Brian, I was like, dude, well, I forgot to tell you that I kind of pussied out, you know, and I said, like, you know, this is really far for me. And, you know, like the drummer situation, like I didn't know if I saw that much promise, really, although I did really like Brian and John, uh, John um, Deering, who is uh, before the first album. And but, you know, I thought they were really talented, um, you know, just the first time I saw those guys, they were quite a few years younger than me and they could play guitar so good that I never picked my guitar up ever again. You know, I just was <laughs> like, I seriously was like, what the fuck have you been doing? You know, you've been just wasting your time. <laughs> and, uh, so that's what I really, you know, decided to go gung ho for this vocal thing. And, um, you know, I, that, so there was a time when I said, Hey, you know, you know, I appreciate the opportunity, but I don't think I'm going to be coming back, you know? And then, um, eventually Brian just sent me the song, I think to kind of like, Raz me, you know what I mean? To be like, fuck you. And I said, listen, dude, I'm going to sound like the hugest cock in the world right now, but I got to say this, have me back out there. <laughs> I was like, this is worth driving for. This is fucking good. And I want to try, you know? And, uh, so I sat with the song, uh, right in front of my computer. I listened to it on fucking Winamp a hundred times and I wrote it into like Word or something. And this is essentially what exactly what I do now to this day. And I remember writing it along to it and being like, am I doing this right? You know, like, is this right? I mean, should I sing here or, you know, but I was so serious <laughs> about it. And I really, really tried to feel out the song. And, and, you know, I wrote these like super crybaby emo metal lyrics, you know, like, you know, really metaphoric, like I'm bleeding my heart. Oh, you know, like that was so like typical <laughs> at the time. And um, I came with the song memorized to practice. And, um, you know, I was singing it to myself in this kind of whisper voice there at home. And, you know, not really knowing if I was even going to be able to really do what I wanted to do once I got there. But I had it in my mind, you know, how I wanted it to sound like, you know, a high and low voice. You know, at the time, they weren't that much. They weren't that extremely different, really. But, you know, it was an attempt to do two things. And it. I came, they rolled tape on me, and we sang the song. We rolled through it once, then we did it again, and um, it sounded good, you know? And I could tell that that they were impressed, you know? And they had this other guy named Brian Ebert, who um, 
I think eventually, like, I don't even see him anymore. He used to be one of my great friends, but I think he got so embittered with the, the band's eventual success that he just kind of disappeared. But uh, he was yeah. you know, vying for that same spot. But, you know, he already had like two other cool bands and shit, you know, but I felt very jealous that that he was coming in. I was like, oh, well, he's got a great voice and, you know, like he's going to get the get the job. But I guess um, it was the lyrics and the patterns and, you know, um, I don't know the content or something and it's you know i had probably also the effort yeah you know and, and, I, ha- and the I, I had the uh the lyrics right there for them you know they got to read them and stuff and and i felt proud and uh, uh you know they had they played a f- we played a couple songs and um they were like you know you did really good you know do you want to go to the show with us and uh yeah sure let's go it was at this place mr mugs in ypsilanti michigan which is like the middle of nowhere it's like the, the next town over from ann arbor and um it's like uh, there was this place there that like the, it was like the epicenter of our hardcore world, basically. You know, you'd have Bane come through there, throw down, circle of dead children all the time. Um, Creationist Crucifixion, that was our second show. Um, you know, all these bands that we were so into at the time. And, and, and uh, oh, man, so Mr. Bugs, yeah. So we went to the show there. Yes. It was Circle of Dead Children, this band, The Plague which we really looked up to at the time. They were a lot like us, not blasty, but um, a lot of the same elements, you know? Uh, and they were just so good. We looked up to them so hard. Um, I believe Poison the Well was on the show. Like, they jumped on in a weird uh, occurrence. But then I, I made Brian leave before Poison the Well, which I, I'm kind of sad about now because he really loved them. But I was so far from home. I had to I had <laughs> to go back to Corey's house and get my car, then drive back. I was going to be home at like three in the morning or something, you know. And at the time, that was just – I don't know. It's just, just – not we, we weren't partying yet. You know what I mean? There was no drugs. There was no alcohol. We were a bunch of straight-edge weeds. And, uh, you know, uh, but at the show, they had kind of gotten together in their private corners and had discussion about me. And they they came eventually and were like, so do you want to do this? And I said, hell yeah, man, absolutely. And that was it, dude. Uh, just it's that's where it started. You know, um, it was the, the most exci- history. It was, it was the most exciting time uh, to be in a band that I felt was way beyond my talent and uh, something where I had to push myself. And, uh, you know, and that was in the very infancy. I mean, you can really laugh at hearing the demos now. You know, I sure do. But um, when I hear them, I, I, I remember the time. I remember how important the songs were to me, how life and death the whole thing seemed. You know, like it, well, it was, the driving, was the driving force in my whole life. Like the whole my whole happy place was this idea of some kind of success or achieving something or you know, making an EP, like getting something real pressed. And, you know, so it was slow steps, you know, it was, it was first that demo. Then we used that to kind of, um, get garner some local following a little bit. We kind of had our own people showing up after a while, you know, not necessarily that you're, uh, every guy that was at the Bane show or whatever, but, um, and, and then, um, you know, we, uh, I forget, we had some kind of outlet like at mp3.com, I want to say. There was some way that people were able to hear us shit. Um, maybe some kind of embedded player on a website or something. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But, um, you know, like we were getting some praise from other Midwestern bands that had like gotten wind of the demo or whatever. And that was like exciting for us. You know, that was like a little boost of confidence. And then we, um, we pitched it around a bit. We almost got signed to this label called, um, was it indecision or undecided records? 
And they, they were putting out As the Sunsets at the time. That was like their big flagship band, and they were like blowing up. And we were so flattered that, uh, well, one half of the people in the label, uh, well, Brian went to Crazy Fest with a, a disc man, a backpack full of our demo CDs, and he was making people listen to it. He like set up right with all the merch and with all these bands. And like was doing this crazy ground level work. And, you know, he got one bite from this one guy who was in Indecision Records. And they eventually shot us down because the other guy didn't quite see it or wasn't quite as, as excited as, as the first. But, you know, those moments where we got close to something, it meant a lot. And we, we, we kind of, you know, just let, we took that like as a, you know, as a compliment. And, so then we, you, you know, you know what? It's really interesting that you say that that you took it as a compliment because one thing I've always done uh, when opportunities come my way is I've always told myself, even if this doesn't work out, the fact that I was even considered for this is a really good sign. And uh, just look at it that way, like oh yeah, you were sure. you were even in the the fact you were even in the running means. A lot, so appreciate it. And if it doesn't work out, the fact that you were in the running means you can get in the running again, and eventually it will work out. And that was exactly what happened. Um, it was first that, then we flirted with this label called World War Three, and they were like getting pretty dis decent distribution. They were somehow tied to Death Row Records. We eventually found out, and like the label itself fizzled out kind of shortly after. But at the time. Their albums were at all the local record stores and shit. You know, all their death metal albums were there. And uh, we were like, wow, you know. And then um, the guy who was running it, his name was Jerry Battle. He seemed like kind of a tool bag. And eventually he got kind of like overly emotional on us and weird. And um, so we decided, ah, oh, it's probably not the, for the best to do this. You know, we're getting closer to something better, you know. Then we kind of clawed our way onto that uh, Hellfest appearance. Well, wait, wait. Before that, we we got picked up by a small label, this upstart label called Love Lost, and we were to be their first release. And um, pretty sure they heard us through mb3.com, and it had to be the old demo tracks because that's all we had at the time. The songs were in chronological order and how they were written. So the last song the demo was more advanced. It was all blasts. There was no breakdowns, and it was the first of what you would call the BDM sound like entirely. Yeah. You know, so we made a point to point that out. Like, this is where we left off. This is where we're going. You know, we want to take this into a more extreme metal realm. And um, so, you know, we had we had gotten the attention of this label. They pressed it up, the EP. They got it reviewed. Um, and, you know, we we did a lot of legwork still. We were sending we were sending CDs everywhere. You know, we were sending bio sheets everywhere trying to get, you know, to make some noise. And, you know, we were getting it reviewed. We were getting it into distros and distros back then were paper, you know, and they had like a mini review to try to sell you on what it was. You know, when we were in Relapse Magazine and they were saying all this great shit about us, you know, and all these other little kind of outlets that, that like meant a lot to me at the time. And it was just like a real excitement there. And um, so, you know, we knew we had to get a pro press CD out there so that we could get like snippets for the reviews and then, you know, pull out the best, the best stuff for the ultimate bio. Somehow it was all about assembling- All this, about that bio. <laughs> yeah, it was all about assembling this ultimate you know, punchline for yourself, you know what I mean? So that when you did really finally reach out to these labels that they would see you were dead fucking serious, you know? And uh, 
So, you know, the bio had pictures of us playing at Hellfest and talked about how we clawed our way on there. It talked about any good local, you know, shows that we'd played with international bands. The the few like dorky times that we left town in four cars, you know, to go to to uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana or whatever to play in front of no one, you know, just anything we could really do. And we said there's an impending full length coming. And, um, you know, um, and that was that was that was the that was it. You know, it was like uh, uh, so. So, yeah, we had we had this thing on Love Lost. We were getting it reviewed. We um, we started to hear talk from other from bands that were on relapse that they'd heard of us, like through people that were at, there working. And that was give me a feel for what year this is. Approximately. Uh, 2002. OK, so, you know, um, on Hollow came out in 2003 and that's in 2000. I think we signed in 2000. To like somewhere near the end of the year, but um, um, so you know, it was just little bits that just kind of solidified that people were being fooled into thinking that it was a real band, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we were just kids, and that's what we wanted. We wanted to be real, you know, we wanted to be taken seriously and and to, to make good music and and to do shit, you know, and and uh, I remember like just you know, eventually. Relapse sent one of those rejection letters, and I think they just saw us as too. I believe they just saw us as too um, generic. You know what I mean? And uh, you know there were other bands like us at the time, and you know we've never. I've never said we were an original band. You know it's definitely a melting pot of many different styles and you know classic kind of elements. I think, but um, you know it did hurt my pride that we weren't cool enough or you know sideways and original enough. I guess for Relapse. And their roster at the time, you know what I mean? They were and, they uh, were they were like the cool label back then. Oh yeah, they were. I remember that. I they, mean, like I, I still I still love them now, but they've kind of gone down this weird like, um, you know, I go to college music. Yeah, but like path, back you know? back then though, I remember they had Bastodon when they were first like. Oh yeah, and Cephalic Carnage and. Uh, yeah, yeah, they they were like the. They were the cool label, and, and for sure. Uphill Battle, when we met those guys, we met those guys the day before we played at Hellfest. And this is Hellfest in Syracuse that used to happen back in the day. You know, like, that was, like, the biggest fest in the States as far as, like, this big crossover between hardcore and and death metal and all these different things in between, you know. Um, it was huge for that, you know. This is, like, where where the red cord like was breaking out and you know walls of jericho and all these other bands would go and play huge huge performances and it would be like such a cause such a ripple you know for them and uh so it was like a real goal for us to get there and just kind of try to shake things up and i remember we you know we the night before we like scammed our way onto the show it was just like a diy show at some uh practice space in new jersey and um, Uphill Battle was playing, and they were on Relapse, and they were the ones that told us that guys at the label had been talking about us. And we just basically shit our pants at that point, you know? So, like, that was really the last the last push that we needed, you know? So then we got John Kay on guitar, and we had our first lead guitar player. And um, so immediately we were writing new songs, and we wanted to show the labels and crap what we could do with with leads, you know? So... So we had these new songs, all of which would end up on Unhollowed, and they had John's first leads. And um, it was a three-song demo that we recorded. So we would send that out with the uh, the EP itself. So you could say, oh, yeah, this is good, but here's what we're doing now. It's better. And um, we had our ultimate rap sheet finally. But like I said, you know, 28 of them came back. 
And uh, yeah, when Metal Blade called and, and, and bit, we couldn't believe it. We thought it was a joke at first. We thought it was a prank because it, it happened so much later. So than even g- like, give me an idea. F- give me an idea for how long was the lapse between when you got your first rejection and when you finally got the when they finally bit. Like, how long oh, were you was, just dealing with with rejection? Months, man, months. You know, four months or something. I don't know. You know, a long. So long enough. Long enough to where. You could have gotten discouraged. We we did and we didn't. You know, we we were discouraged that we didn't make it to like the first choices. But Willowtip was coming up then, and we were seeing their bands on tour all the time at this DIY level. And um, you know, Status Euphoria and Circle of Dead Children and all these cool bands were coming through. And um, you know, they they seemed to share that kind of punk rock um, DIY ethic that like you know was in line with what we were already kind of you know going for but um and they were a great label so we were very excited about at least doing that you know so we were we were gonna sign with willow tip and we were gonna do our best and try to go up from there you know and just do the same thing like try to get it reviewed as much as possible try to get it in as many distros as possible and just use that that banner of willow tip as an even better vehicle you know but um so then metal blade called and we told willow tip no of course like i said and um, then it all it started, you know, when, when we finally like they called back the second day and it was Slagle and he's like, hey, I'm Brian Slagle. Uh, you've been talking to, you know, my my right hand man, uh, Mike. And we're like, oh, <laughs> we're like, oh, wow. And he's like, I, I you know <laughs> I really like to work with you guys. And, uh, and then that was it, man. It was uh, the biggest turning point in my life. It was the biggest uh, revelation, you know, it was huge. It was all we wanted to do was quit our life to do this. You know what I mean? That was the dream to like, to get that opportunity. So, man, you know, so I know the, I know the feeling because like, uh, I guess when Monty Connor first hit me up to sign my band in like 2005, even though that's not what I'm doing now, I also consider that the biggest turning point in my life. Like, that getting signed to Roadrunner changed my life completely. I remember getting the first email from Monty and just being like, is this real? Like, oh, yeah, I remember that, too. Is like this getting, really happening? Getting business emails and being in on, like, threads for the first time of things. And yeah. I remember um, the time from when we were doing the contracts to the time that we recorded on Hollowed, and then the time that it came waiting for it to come out, it seemed so excruciatingly long to us. Because we were so excited to get out there and get on tour, you know. We had- and how long was it really? Uh, well, I mean, the wait was three months, just like it always is from the recording to when yeah. it comes out. But um, I don't really remember how long the process took with the with the contracts, but it seemed so excruciating at the time. And uh, just like it would never end, like it would, like, are we ever going to do this, you know? Like, or is this going to, like, fall apart somehow before this happens? Like, there was uh, um, an era of, like, some kind of skepticism, you know what I mean? Because we I know exactly what you're talking about. We, we, we didn't have any grip on how it was supposed to work or how long it would take or, you know, we didn't know. We didn't know the ins and outs of it, you know. So it was a time of uncertainty, even though, you know, they would keep reassuring us, you know, and they would kept expressing excitement in the band. And, uh, you know, so. Um, Man, that shit was so excruciating. I know exactly what you're talking about. It took from the moment that they said, we're going to sign you until the moment that we signed was like 
five weeks or something. Right, um, right. And, you know, it's and scrutinizing. man, those five weeks drove me insane. Yeah. And, you know, trying to scrutinize over these contracts and you've never seen anything like it in your life. And uh, we were like reaching out to lawyers that like were laughing at the amounts of money that were on there because they were used to dealing with Motown artists and stuff. And like <laughs> they weren't honestly very helpful in any way. And we were just so green kind of coming into it, you know, um, that um, – you know, I think the contract could have been better at first, for sure. Of course. You know, but but that's, that's how it always works, really. And I think things are way worse now. You know, you have these 360 deals and all kinds of different, um, you know, things that can rip your butthole, you know. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's like, um, so, you know, finally we handed them. I remember going to record. Well, we wanted to leave town and go record at all these studios I'd read about and all these different records that I liked, you know. And um it just logistically wasn't possible. We didn't have enough money to put ourselves up and feed everyone. And, you know, there was no income, you know, yet there was nothing. So we had to record where we'd already recorded. And I, I remember at the time I was being, I was really bummed about that. You know, I thought that we were like, it was a short sell somehow, or it wouldn't come out as good as it could have because we were staying locally. You know what I mean? And, um, I mean, that was on hollow. That's what we made on hollowed. And, and um, it wasn't perfect. And I remember like at the end of it thinking, you know, this this isn't a perfect record. And, you know, I, I was kind of um, bummed about that, you know, but there wasn't a whole lot of time. We weren't the best players. We were definitely reaching very far beyond our technical ability for some of the shit at the point, you know, because we weren't practicing like fucking fire drills then. You know what I mean? We weren't playing back to back songs. We weren't we had no endurance. We had no real understanding about how to get there or that that was going to be a thing that separated the men from the boys. You know, we used to take fucking five minutes between each song and just like blah, blah to the crowd and like, just be super annoying. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was a hard, it was challenging to get it done even to the level that it was. And we kind of caught up shortly after that, you know what I mean? By just jumping in and going out and playing and, and, you know, just what was there like maybe a, uh another band that you toured with maybe that schooled you guys or something because i know that for us like when we were first touring and we didn't know what the fuck we were doing we were lucky enough to have our first few tours were like with goat whore and unearth and unearth when 2007 they'd already been pretty big for a while and they're just like the coolest guys ever so they were like they like took us aside through that whole tour and just kind of showed us how to be a band and same with goat whore goat whore you know they're like in 2006 2007 they were also i don't know how much they tour now but they were touring like crazy back then and they were just like a touring machine and they just taught us how to do it they taught us like everything from how to pack your trailer right to how to load in to how to set up merch to like all of it. Like, oh, dude. I, I remember asking, um, well, on this tour with Soil, well, it was Goat Whore or, or Soil and Green. Um, we used to tour with both of them so much that, like, it's a blur now, kind of. But um, I remember asking, what's a buyout? You know, <laughs> like, and they're like, well, you know, it's in your contract. Um, if they don't give you food to eat, you know, every day, they're, they're supposed to give you $10. So I was like, what? You're like, you know, like, but, you know, we were like, so when we left, we were just as green, you know what I mean? And, um, the band, well, first of all, we, we made friends with the red cord, uh, when they came through town and we just played with them as a local band, you know, and it was very obvious that they were nerds and very obvious that they were like big death metal heads in a hardcore scene, 
you know, and um, we kind of hit it off with them. You know, we we had been talking to him kind of on the web before that, um, you know, and they sent a demo tape that would, you know, eventually be songs on the first record. And they just blew our heads off. You know, they were the most original thing we had heard. And then when we came, they came to town and we saw them, they were so fucking tight. They were so terrifying. Their uh, just overall aesthetic and tightness and just their attitude and their kind of like tongue and cheek, you know, um, like just the the banter and stuff was like so like bitter and satirical and and funny though. Awesome. You know? And awesome. I remember seeing them in 2004 at Maryland Death Fest and was just like, "Oh my god. Like how is this so explosive?" Uh, like dude. everything about them was just like an explosion of just like I don't know, I don't see that kind of stuff anymore. You do, yeah, I don't think there's another band really that's um that ever will scratch that same itch for me. I don't know. Like they have like a, an anomalous place in my heart kind of. And, um, that day after they played, we had a fucking meeting right at the show. And we were like, I do not know what the fuck that was, but we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we have to go back to the drawing board. We got to start like ripping these songs out rapid fire, right? One after the other, we got to shut the hell up. We got to fucking, you know, get into it to a level that like is really exciting and, you know, channel this, like this, this insane passion that they like seem to exude. And, uh, they, um, they really liked our band and they were really good to us. Uh, we went on one tour right when we got signed, it was booked by, um, Rob, who sang for A Life Once Lost, and he was based out of Philly, and he was like booking for small bands and doing kind of, you know, small weekend tours and shit. And he put us together with this other band that was on Love Lost Records, that same little label that put us out, you know, the EP. And, um, but, you know, the Metal Blade release was impending at that point. So, you know, we had it, they bought us a van, you know, we, we, we begged them to, you know, get a ride and said, hey, you know, oh, this is the only thing holding us back, man is something to ride to the next town and, you know, you point at it, we're going, you know? So that, that was a huge milestone. Um, so then we went on this little tour. Nobody was really coming around to see us. Maybe a few people, you know, we had some of those reviews out there, but, but nothing really big yet. And there was some talk about the band because of, you know, the release that was coming on Metal Blade and it came out. And wait, wait, is this before or after you got schooled by the Red Cord? It was, it was after Okay. But what I'm getting at was that, you know, the first story we went on, whatever, it was really fun. It wasn't much in way of exposure at all. You know, it was a lot of fun, though. And then the second tour, Red Cord, I had a band drop off of this really sick lineup, and they decided to take us out on the uh, opening end of the bill. Uh, I believe we were second of four. And it was us, um, Deadwater Drowning, uh, D Nate Johnson's old band, before... Um, through the Eyes of the Dead and all these other things he sang for. Then um, Premonitions of War, who had just gotten signed to Victory and put out an album. And they, they were like down that that like dead guy pipeline, you know, like a botch, dead guy, kind of disjointed, heavy, crazy, coalesced kind of metal. Um, and they, they were devastating, man. They were from um, Toledo, so they were nearby, and they were kind of a part of our scene. You know, they would come up into Michigan and play, and they would just annihilate everything. So, and then Redcore was at the top of the bill, and they were blowing up. You know, they had um, fused together and revolving doors out, and it was blowing up. And they had they had label offers from from every label at at one point. And really, Guy, the singer, was such a mad scientist. 
I think he he was like torturing the people at the labels. He was putting them through these weird tests. He was fucking with them. He was really like abusing them to try to see like what he could get away with and who was going to like kind of take the most. And um, <laughs> I think honestly, he spent too much time in that period where they should have bit right away and got that second record going. Because by the time the thing came out, honestly, clients, by the time it came out on um, Metal Blade, they had, I think they'd lost a lot of steam already from kind of like, from being away. You know, there was just too much time had lapsed between the, between the albums. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. You know, and um, I mean, they still had a good ride after that, but there was a moment where they could have been as big as Dillinger was at their height. You know what I mean? I was about to say that exact right. same thing. They could have been a Dillinger escape plan band. They, they were that in that kind of scene. They, they combined so many things. They combined death metal, tech metal. You know, there was that kind of dead guy element. There was, um, you know, there was hardcore breakdowns. There was, there was some fucking mad ball parts in there. You know, it was everything. It was like the most violent cocktail. It was like a no rules, like, let's take everything that kills and put it all in one band. You know what I mean? And just have no fat whatsoever and just have this shape-shifting, disgusting, you know, hydra of of crazy ideas and originality. And, you know, I think— And pummeling live. Oh, my God. They, were, they wrecked everything, man. They just, like, seriously— it must have been so exciting to see them around um, New England, like even before I caught them, you know, just destroying everything. I can't imagine. And, uh, you know, um, they them extending their hand to us and taking us out was huge. I mean, they were buzzing so hard at that time. We were playing to 200 plus shows on our very on our second tour ever. You know what I mean? They were they were very DIY shows. They were you know in your gymnasiums and your in your uh, VFW halls and weird little record stores and you know all those great fun places to play. And um, they were so serious and so driven about their own label that they were running, um, Black Market Activities. And um, at that time, they were getting the the you know the offer from Metal Blade, and they were settling that out. But the actual writing of clients, I think, is what. And I think the changing of drummers actually slowed them down a lot too. So before they had that kind of lap, yes, that lapse yes. right there, that lapse of like, um, you know, they just like kind of like lost some of their the wind in their sails there. I think uh, in retrospect. Well, he he was just an explosive drummer. Oh yeah, Mike man, he's crazy. You know, now yeah. he's with Madball. You know, he played with Unearth. At, you know, for a spell and. Uh, I should I should hit him up. I haven't talked to him in uh, a while. Either, I, me, I haven't seen him in centuries, man. And yeah, um, me and him were really good friends for a while. Yeah, Mike Mike is Mike's cool, and um, you know uh, I remember just like. I looked up to them so hard and to premonition so hard. And at the time, the uh, the guitar player who was kind of the main man backbone of premonitions, you know, kind of their get it done guy was was this guy, Mike. And the two of them did black market activities together, which when um, Metal Blade picked up Guy, they also picked up his label. And he, he mm -hmm. became this like subsidiary, you know what I mean, that was putting out all this cool shit, you know, um, architect... Not architects from England, but architect um, uh, found dead hanging. Um, you know, all, all these like dead guy, Dillinger, you know, that kind of crossover area was what he was into when he was putting out, you know. And um, so just hearing those two talk and just how serious they were and just like kind of their 
you know, I literally looked up to them. I felt like they knew how to take it to some level that we didn't yet, and that we should observe them on every front because they were so intense live. They were conveyed so much passion. They had so much this of this fuck you attitude that like you were afraid to not join with them. You know what I mean? Like, and uh, you knew that if you didn't like them, that they were gonna just put that middle finger right in your face. And uh, so that like really rubbed off on us, and it, it was such a huge compliment to have guy reaching out and extending his hand to us like that. And um, that was the beginning of a, of a snowball, you know, that, that grew. I mean, and the record, the record, um, it helped it pick up steam, you know what I mean? And helped us get on people's radars because there was a, a tour being advertised on, on your, on lamb goat and, you know, shit like that. And, you know, it was like a legitimate tour and, or, you know, close enough at the time, you know, that was really the big step, man. So I, I got to, th- you know, red cord is like, is the band. You know, and then eventually we got on, you know, you know, we started to get like a, a uh, we went out with uh, Soylent Green, like I was saying earlier. Them, mm-hmm. Lit Golden Sky was on it. Um, man, who else was on it? But um, yeah, like that was the first real tour. We were taking up, you know, the first like tour where we had a booking agent. You know, it was John Finberg. Oh, yeah, man. a nightmare. But, you know. Oh dear. I remember like just his reputation preceded him everywhere we went, you know, the promoter would be like, yeah, he had these like big dudes beat my friend up or, you know what I mean? Like, or just all this crazy shit. Oh man. And, you know, <laughs> of course, eventually, you know, we had to part ways with them. And, how did, you know, how did whole, that go? Did, did he threaten to burn your story. house down? Oh yeah, of course. Of course. Um, and Brian got really pissed at him and he like kind of shoved him and we were at, um, house of blues in Anaheim. And he had us kicked out of our own show. <laughs> Man, that 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 dude definitely threatened to kill me uh, when we uh, when we parted uh, ways dude, with he's him. He's done that to everybody. I think he's threatened to yeah. kill his own mother. You know what I mean? Like, uh, he's like so <laughs> mercurial, you know. But whatever, I, I've laughed him off and out of my system like a million years ago. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about stuff that happened in 2007. <laughs> right, like, right. But, but you know, we were, you know. Getting out on this tour with, um, and you know, Ben from Soylent Green and Goat Horror, I'd met a few times from going to see his bands and kind of just fanboying out on him, you know. And he remembered me, you know, he knew I was a huge fan. And my whole, a lot of what I do on stage is, is directly influenced by Ben. It's directly just bitten off of Ben from what I saw the first time I saw Goat Horror, and it had just had my jaw on the ground. And that was in 2001 when we were cutting our very first demo in the band's infancy. I remember driving from the kid's house we were recording at and to go see them at the IROC. And there was only a few people there. It was them and Immolation. And um, just Ben and the way he spoke with his hands and the way he moved, you know, and they like did the claw and all this expressive shit. And I was just like, Oh, oh my God. You know, like <laughs> this is how to be a front man, you know? So he knew I was, you know, I idolized him and I, I was like doing this little Ben Jr. thing. You know what I mean? Probably what it looked like on stage, you know, to him. So it was probably cute. And uh, they were really nice to us. And they kind of helped us with a lot of those aspects that you said, you know, like how to pack, yeah. how to do, you know, how to be like 
economical, how to, you know, do everything right and kind of, you know, and not how to make it work. Right. Not par- party so idiotically that you have to that you burning bridges with places. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we used to do dumb shit like, you know, oh, I took a big shit in the parking lot. You know what I mean? Or like just stuff like that <laughs> where they're like wagging their finger at you. No, no, no. You got to come back to these places. You can't just act like it's the end of the world at every show. You know what I mean? Like that's another thing we learned this um early on was there were so many bands we saw that would take advantage of people that would take advantage of merch cuts that would, you know, scam that would steal stuff from the venues that would break stuff. Like there were some kind of rock stars, you know, backstage or who knows what. And, you know, we just, we decided, dude, no way we're going to have a reputation of being fucking cool to people, being good people, being, uh, working with the staff, you know, um, um, you know, being communicative and just, you know, like planning for a future, you know, not just like going around being a jag off and like just, you know, yeah, wow, we left a trail of carnage on our wake. That was really cool. But now what? You know, what can we do now? We can't go back to any of those venues. No one wants to book us, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Man, it's really good to have a band teach you that stuff before you end up like before it's too li- late. Light, lighting a venue on fire or something. Right. Because, you know, there's so much ego that comes with even being signed. And you, because you wanted it so bad, and all of a sudden you're opened up into this world and given the key to immortality, basically, it feels like. And, you know, you're staying at people's houses, you're making out with chicks for, you know what I mean? Like, fucking all this stuff you want to do. You know, you're playing shows in front of people, you, you know, a few people are buying your record every day, you know, and it feels like you're doing this missionary work for yourself, you know, like spreading the name around. And, you know, it was also exciting. It was, it was hard to keep your head out of the clouds in some regards. You know what I mean? Do you remember the knocked Mystium story on the Opeth tour? I think this was 2008, like when they first got signed to a bigger label, I believe. And they got that Opeth tour, like when they were like, really like the supposed to be like the next black metal band and they threw the TV out the window. Yeah. At at Worcester, Palladium. Palladium. Yes. Yeah. There you have it. See, you're, that's the exact, yep. exactly what we're talking about. You know, like, um, you know, Hey, you're not mayhem. You know, it's not, it's not 1988, you know? So it's like, who do you think you are? You know? And if you want to, you want to be on a professional tour with Opeth and go out and just embarrass the shit out of yourself and do the most juvenile shit you can do right out of the gate and just totally shoot yourself in the foot, blow your foot entirely off even you know on the I mean? third day. Yeah, exactly. Like what a bunch of clown ass motherfuckers, you know what I mean? And, uh, so, I mean, there was a lot to be learned by observing bands that were idiots too. You know what I mean? It wasn't all just by observing bands that knew what they were doing. We'd run into bands that we thought were dickheads all the time or clueless or egomaniacs or disrespectful or, you know, there was a lot to be learned from both sides of the coin. It felt like, you know, so it, it, it was, um, but yeah, there was a lot of ego that kind of came with it and a lot of misunderstanding about our place in the food chain. You know, when we started to get like a, like decent tours, like a, really a big game changer was when Metal Blade, I think, pushed for us to be on this Azalea Dying, Every Time I Die co-headliner. And they were both at this amazing, amazing height. You know, they were at this, they were like rising astronomically all the time and they were flip-flopping and we were the second of two bands. And, you know, we were, you know, 
green. We were very slow to set up. We were probably twisting our symbols before coming off stage, like a total <laughs> bags, like local bands. And, you know, we just didn't get how to be efficient. We didn't get how we were kind of stepping on the toes of the schedule and like how detrimental that is to everyone in the tour. And we felt like, well, you know, these, you know, Big Tim Lambesis is, is coming down and barking orders at us to, you know, get our shit together. And um, we're like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, we, we didn't get it. <laughs> we didn't get it at all. It took a second kind of. And I think that they really, the both of them probably wanted to to shake the shit out of us. You know, I think they thought we were funny guys. You know, I, we did have laughs with them and stuff. But I think, um, especially every time I die, I think they just wanted to like, grab us and just shake the shit out of us. You know what I mean? Like, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah, you guys are okay, but, you know, well, fuck you, you idiots, you know? And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, that was kind of revelatory at the time. You know, it took a second to kind of really realize all that, of those things. You know what I mean? And um, Did you eat their food? Yes, of course. <laughs> Of course, yeah. We of had course. our merch guy was, you know, eating their eating rat boys hummus and pissing them off, you know, and like <laughs> all just all their all just tons of little amateur shit where they're just probably like, look at these clueless fucking clown assholes, and you know, and if any band came around me doing all the same shit right now, I would think the exact same thing or worse, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so there was still a lot of growing to do, you know, like, but that was a, that tour itself was so. Fucking huge for us, man. Um, they were playing in front of um, 500 to 1,000 people a show. And we were on it, part of this. And we were being celebrated as being an asset to this really killer package that was just going to go wreck North America. And it totally did. And we turned a lot of heads. We did a f- that That was when I first started drinking and playing. <laughs> <laughs> and I did like, I used to do like 10 stage dives every night. During our set, you know, like it was, I used to have no regard for myself whatsoever. And I remember like by the end of the tour, my body looked, I looked like a giraffe from just being like held by people's fingers or poked by people's, you know, hands trying to catch me in my ribs and stuff. And, um, you know, we were, we were young. We didn't get hung over like, like a dad, like I do now. You know what I mean? We were, we had very <laughs> resilient bodies, you know, we could party, we partied to, Eventually, you know, we became this party band, you know, and kind of known for that, you know, like to be this Jaeger swilling, um, you know, circus sideshow, you know, but um, that was a gradual kind of thing. But uh, that was when it kind of first kicked off. And um, so, yeah, you know, we were we were making impressions, you know, we were jumping and, you know, we were jumping in the crowd. We were playing this fast ass music. I was a little dork with a with a serial killer haircut and glasses. And, um, you know, that was the very be- that was a big beginning for us. You know, it was a big, big, a big kind of ripple. And it felt like a very important kind of it led to I don't know. It's the very beginning of all this shit, kind of, you know, like the real serious touring and like real and good shows, good opportunities, you know. And uh, after that, you know, came um, um, I don't remember the exact order of all the tours anymore, but, um, you know, King Diamond was was early on for us. Um, That was huge. And that was one where we we felt a lot of. animosity from from long hair I was about to I was about to say that that's was like real brunt that's kind of a le, that's a legit metal tour it was it was us it was behemoth opening then us um and behemoth was just getting steam in America on demigod 
You know, were they bad? Were they badass yet? Oh yeah, man, are you kidding I me? They'd already been, pl- man, if, been. Oh god, the idea of following them sounds terrifying. It, it was ter- it was terrifying. It definitely was. And playing on huge stages with big monitors, and you know, I didn't even know how to fucking use monitors yet. Still at that point, you know, I was like, what the fuck do you do with these things? You know, I tried to get myself dialed in what I thought I needed, but I remember it being like a real intimidating thing and kind of missing. I like I like shitty shows where you just go on the stage and do it. You know that's easy. So, but I, uh, <laughs> anyway, so you know there was growth in that way too. But there was so much learned on that King Diamond tour. You know, just by observing Nile, observing the King, of course. You know, and also the you know the taste of that hierarchy where you're the very first band. You're in front of three different backlines. Including King Diamond's all of his set stuff, which takes up tons of room. We're talking a big cemetery gate, all these shelves full of like skulls and candles and and butcher knives and shit. And there's literally no room at the front of the stage. Like I remember there was shows where I'd sing with my feet. I would be on the barrier. You know what I mean? Running back and forth on the barrier <laughs> because there wasn't going to be anyone crowd surfing or, you know, or whatever. There, you know, I could be down there, you know, <laughs> and uh, it, um, I remember being really angry about that too at the time, you know, like how can we even look good if we don't even have any room to, you know, run around, and do anything. You know, I remember being really offended and feeling really like neutered, you know, but how did you but, get, pa- how did you get past that, man? Cause I feel like that's another one of those things that like, baby bands and local bands need to just get over you know kind of like they just need to learn it like don't eat the people's food like be cool about the amount of stage room you get like how did you just realize that that was the deal you just it, had to make you know the most it didn't it. it did and it didn't get realized then you know eventually i mean a few years back you know we were on a, a show with um with in flames and lamb of god and um i forget i thought it was like one more band and we were in Australia and they all have so much production and so many contractual obligations like, you know, we're going to have our riser up there, too, you know, for ease of use and all this other shit that, you know, all the pro bands want. And um, we were left with such a minuscule, like literal corner of the stage that I, I was taken right back to that feeling. You know what I mean? Like I felt like so like stunted or stifled, like, you know, how can we make these people like us if we can't even like be allowed to do what we're going to fucking do? You know what I mean? And so, so, you know, I didn't say, I wouldn't say I wholly got over it because that was probably 2007 or something that I felt that, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So that's after a lot of achievements, you know, but we were on the very opening end of the spectrum. It was a huge opportunity. The bands were cool to us, but I remember being offended by them at the time because they didn't stop what I considered to be such a like an offense on my own pride. You know what I mean? (laughs) You're just going to let all these crew guys do this. So it's like, yeah, this is what happens. You know what I mean? But then we got done with the show. We went upstairs and I'm like, you know, fucking like kind of fuming and in flames was up there and they had watched the whole set and they were like, wow. You know, they were like, you guys are so fucking sick. And they said so much nice shit to us. And, and, um, I mean, even that was that was huge. You know, that was a really big compliment. I mean, they were, um, you know, the Jester Race and Horacle were like two huge um, cornerstones of of what we did. You know what I mean? And um, just that they, you know, we were already on a tour with them in the form of Ozfest, but you know, they were they were you know getting so big at the time, and there were so many other bands on there that you know I understand why maybe they didn't catch us or make an effort to. Obviously, didn't know who the fuck we were, you know. 
And um, so, but to, to get that kind of vouch from them at that moment was so cool. And, you know, we've remained friends at some level. You know, I see those guys around. They're really cool. Um, they've talked to us about taking us out, which I still hope for someday. You know, I'm always hoping to be at the opening end of the spectrum now. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. There's only so much you can do if you just keep headlining every every time, you know. Uh, we we. It's awesome, you know. I'm not. I'm not saying it's not awesome that we can't that we can do it, but you know, we want bigger. We want. We want to go bigger, and that's that's one of those ways, man. We need a. We need a Slayer tour. We need a Lamb of God. We need a In Flames, a Demu. You know, uh, we're still hoping for those kind of things. So you know, hopefully, you know, it seems to. The success. Demo's got a new record coming. Yeah, see, the success for us seems to grow with every album a little bit, and with this one. It's looking astronomical, actually. Um, you know, we have. I saw that it was the biggest pre-order, the biggest pre-sale yet in Metal Blade history. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so just just that being in black and white right in front of my eyes is like, holy crap, man! You know, congrats. And you know, it's a lot of it is um, this fan club that we have embraced. It was at first just an um, unofficial thing. Um, it was headed by. These kids that had these really intense collections of our merch, and I used to know one of them, Kyle, just his name, because of following his Instagram, and he was seeking to get every single merch design that we ever had. And you know, back then, even it was still a lot already. And um, I remember thinking that was really cool, really flattering, and that he kind of got it. You know, like oh, he gets this aesthetic. He he likes what we're doing in that way, and it, you know, it meant something to me. So I kind of like always had that kid in the back of my mind and kind of checked on him. You know. And then um, he told me about the group he had going. It was like a, a closed Facebook group called the Blast Fiends because we um, we made like – we tried to do a couple different things that we tried to have stick in what we called the fans. There was the Vampire Youth. That was the first one. I still use that lyric sometimes to kind of tie it into other times I've used it. So it's like a, just a little Easter egg kind of thing now. But um, then it was the Blast Fiends, kind of like a twist off the um, Misfits um, Fiend Club. Because we had this logo, it was like just like the the blast the um, Fiend Club shirt, like it was the circular text that was around the misfit skull, but instead it was ape, and um, so that's kind of where the name came from. So you know he told me about this fan club, whatever that was cool. I'm like yeah, that's really cool. So I started. It was about 500 people strong. Then I started posting about it on our our social outlets, and you know they were bringing people in at an astronomical rate. And now it's um, you know twenty thousand people deep, and it's people from all over the place. But the most important thing about it is there's like these eight people, they're admins, and they're like the absolute most hardcore BDM fans I've ever been privy to, and they they're they're following us around like the Grateful Dead almost on tours now. You know, like uh, it seems every tour they're trying to outdo each other to show up at the most shows. You know, we had um, Jarrell and Kyle I think went to thirteen shows of the last tour. Wow. You know, and um, those are the two. The, in my mind, those are the two like ultimate heads of the fan club, and they've created this culture for collection for our shit, and they've somehow gotten the message to people that are in this club about how important this a presale is and how important it is to sell a copy of your record at this time, and you know what I mean above all because it's so hard to do now. You know, I think that they. They've helped people really understand that and created this absurd, absurd race to like be the biggest fan in that way. 
you know, and it's 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 goddamn absurd. But they've made this plan to rock the charts and to do everything they can to advertise it themselves. And it's been like this crazy street team. You know what I mean? It's been so that is the biggest difference I, I can tell you you is that in the last two years we put elbow grease into this thing and um kareem who was our old tour manager i remember him yeah yeah he, he works for indie merch you know um and so he's very tied to the band and what we do still he's still an advisor for us because he sees so much of the scene through what he does you mm -hmm. know and um he also helps me you know secure artists and do all the um the merch legwork and stuff that that we always did together so nothing like that has ever changed we went through a few years where we you know cream was pushing us to do this fan club and us being the stoners we were we just never got around to like really fleshing it out it had a name it had membership cards blah 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 but it never really kind of came into anything after that we kind of like fumbled it and then kareem eventually he hooked up with that group when it started to grow he became, you know, like an admin there, basically. And then he started to envision this fan club where they'd be able to get exclusive merch, you know, that had like this Blasphemes logo, which we eventually made. Um, we made the admins these jackets, like bomber jackets with their names and stuff. And, um, you know, we have like – he just made this he – he sends merch out from his own home to do this thing for us. Like it's a labor of his love. Like it's something that he really wanted to do that he really wanted to see happen for us. And I can't believe really what it's even been doing. You know, like it's really just taken on this insane life. And, um, you know, there's people calling me Papa Trev that started in that group. That's where, you know, I hear that every day of my life now on tour, you know, and, uh, I see kids in Serbia when we play there with these blasphemed shirts that you can only get by being a member and like dealing with them. You know what I mean? Dude, I got to tell you, man, Facebook groups are the secret to life. Um, with my company right now, uh, we do something called Nail the Mix where um, you probably haven't heard of it, but like once a month we get a mixer and a band uh, that we think is awesome and we put out their tracks like obviously we pay the label we pay the publishing and everything but like we'll get their tracks and at the first day of the month we release the tracks to our subscribers and they go and do this mixing competition awesome and that's really cool there's this big community thing and then at the end of the month we do a live stream with that mixer so like for instance this month we got Meshuga on and we're going to Sweden at the end of the month and going to Daniel Bergstrand's place and uh this we're it's future breed machine so he's gonna show them exactly how he makes future breed machine and they're getting the actual tracks from it <laughs> like we've had it's pretty cool man we've had like gojira on uh this is the second time having mashuga we've had day to remember papa roach like all kinds of bands like and all kinds of awesome producers like kane Cherko, um andrew wade tui madsen came on like Logan Mater, uh, just great dudes. And we have a Facebook group called the Private Producers Club that we've just been, myself and my partners have just been like putting a lot of effort into, like trying to make this a real life thing for all these kids and adults that want to get better at mixing. And they now have chapters all over the world. They meet up in real life. Like we also have like oh, yeah. 12 See, admins that, who that's exactly what's happening with us. Like, dude, it's so powerful. Like these people are meeting, they're becoming friends 
and we're, yes. we're the common ground. And every day, almost at every show, there's like this little chapter of these blaspheme kids that meet up in the parking lot. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's insane. Sometimes I may meet them. Sometimes I don't, you know, uh, but it's, it's just going like this crazy wildfire, man. It, it's, it's been crazy. So I, you know, I, I see obviously that it, it's been integral, you know, it's been awesome to have. So, and they're just showing up right now. So like that is what I've, you know, what I attribute a lot of their, their energy and their elbow grease to the amount of pre-sales right now. And, um, it's like, they, I don't know. It's, it's crazy. It's like, they, they know my dream, you know? And, um, I think being so available to them, especially the admins, you know, it, it's like, it's spoken to them a lot, you know what I mean? And, uh, and we just have great fans, man. We have diehards. Like, uh, I see something in our fans that I don't see in every band's fan. Like it's this like Metallica kid level of, you know what I mean? Like just diehardness. And, uh, it's an honor, man. It's, it's really, it's really flattering and it's really the driving force that pushes us to want to be better and want to outdo what we did. You know, it's, it's for them. It's to impress them. It's to, um, to keep them around, you know? Well, you know, one thing Metallica has always been known for, is how well they treat their fans. Yeah, I mean they've had you know pretty much the the fan club, I guess you'd say. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. For decades now, but that that's like always been like no matter what people were saying about them, whether they like their new music, you know, but new Metallica has been like a thing for twenty years now. So like whether people like their quote unquote new music or not or whether they like their haircuts or not or whatever the fuck they feel like saying about Metallica the one thing that people have never ever really said is that they're assholes to their fans they've always said that that band is like one of the warmest bands ever to their fans and that they treat them great and they've always treated them great and have always put a ton of energy into their fan base I mean it's it's obvious I mean they could exist in a total vacuum if they wanted to you know what I mean yes but you see what they do. You see how they extend their hand to people. You see the favors they do for people. You know, um, a, a Metallica cover band that got their shit stolen. You know what I mean? They send them equipment. You know, like, like just crazy, crazy things like that. They have the ability to do anything they want. They have the money to do anything they want. And they use it, I think, for good in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like, um, like, I'm not sure how the second festival they did turned out, but I felt like that fest was something for the fans. You know what I mean? It was something that they really wholeheartedly assembled in, in that mindset, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good example to follow. So, Trevor, we've been on for almost two hours, so I'm going to let you go. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, coming on and taking the time to talk to me and our audience and just being so open and everyone should check out Nightbringers on October 6th. Well, thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been nostalgic in a way that a lot of, I don't know, it's been the most nostalgic interview or whatever you want to call it in so long that I feel like I tapped a lot of events and things that I haven't thought about in so long. And I even find myself getting a little verklempt at a couple of times. Because I've just man, it's it's great stuff. Like you, like I mean, I'm really proud of you guys. You guys have like, uh, 
I mean, I, this is not. I mean, I'm a fan, but like, I, I can. I feel like my opinion is a little different since I've also worked on some of the stuff. But like, yeah, I mean, you're just, you're a peer to us. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've just seen I've seen it from all angles at this point, and I just see that the, you know, anytime that like something seems like it's negative happens, you guys always like turn it around and turn it into a win and like you never have let your standards drop with the music where a lot of other bands do and you've just kept just kept it real and it's awesome it's great you guys deserve you guys deserve all the all the success that you get in my opinion thanks al man that means a lot thank you so it was a pleasure having you on and uh the record sounds great from what I've heard. Oh, thanks a lot, man. Uh, very excited about it. And uh, like I said, man, huge time right now for us. Uh, I feel like we're on the verge of something amazing. So just ready to see what happens next. All right, man. See. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloomed, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.